Hello and welcome back to the weekly Bunker Roundtable. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Coming up on today's show, new day, new allegations. We sample the rancid treat behind the latest window of the government scandal advent calendar. As tensions on the Ukrainian border rise, NATO sends more ships and jets to the region. Are we on the verge of war or has Putin's bluff been called? And as Jeff Bezos sinks more money into discovering a genetic fountain of youth, we ask, is life eternal a dream or a curse? All that and more in today's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. We have another bumper edition, so let's get right to it and meet today's panel. Joining us today, we have broadcaster and author of How Britain Ends, Gavin Esler. Gavin. Hello. Hello. Um, Next Monday is the two-year anniversary of getting Brexit done. Is it done? Well, no. Uh, If it was done, why are we constantly renegotiating it, relitigating it, talking about abandoning the Northern Ireland Protocol, and it's all the Europeans' fault for not giving us the Brexit that we clearly deserve? Why are there, you know, I'm in Kent. Why are there queues at Dover? Again, many, many, many lorry drivers at Dover. Why are there, uh, as we saw to today's news, a million UK citizens in Europe facing all kinds of new bureaucratic problems? Why, why is there a Brexit Opportunities Unit where the opportunities of Brexit, as far as I can see, are for you know four percent loss of GDP and uh, as, as Scottish nationalists to push for independence because they're like most of us fed up with what goes on in Westminster? So, oh come on, Gavin, turn that frown upside down. <laughs> Surely. I mean, Brexiters tend to focus on the negative consequences not being as bad as the worst case scenarios predicted. But what about the benefits promised? Have there been any uplands and are they sunlit? Well, the sunlit uplands include, you know, if you've been shorting the pound at the right stage, you could probably make quite a lot of money. Um uh, the other Brexit uplands. I'll ha- I'll have to I'll have to get back to you on that. I think. Well, uh, Ireland wait. is doing quite well. Oh, you meant for Britain? Oh, for Ireland's doing brilliantly. Thanks very much. Yes, uh, <laughs> that's certainly a certainly a case in point. Um, for the rest of us on on this uh, separate island, <laughs> I'll have to get back to you at the end of the program. I don't know. Mm. Marie, welcome back to author and Westminster mole Marie Leconte. Hello. Hello. Um, Marie, Tory MP Dehena Davidson uh, posted a bizarre video last week shaming a journalist for basically putting a story to her. Um, Craig McKinley did likewise on Saturday with a Twitter thread accusing the Sunday Times of phishing. What's going on? Uh, I mean, putting rumours to, to the people they concern is fairly ordinary journalism, isn't it? Well, it's entirely, and what I don't quite get about these things as well is, would like, in this scenario, like, would they rather the journalists just publish something because they'd had a rumour, thought something without checking with the MPs? It's something I find really puzzling. So I think it started last year with Government Minister Kemi Badenoch, who did the same thing. So I think who accused Nadine White of Huffington Post of muckracking or whatever. Because similarly, it was just like Nadine trying to write a story and trying to get a comment um, out of Kemi. What a crime. Uh, But yeah, I'm not not (laughs) sure. And and it feels, and it feels, yeah, obviously puzzling, but also slightly worrying because it, 
you know, in, in the, do they really think that political reporting is illegitimate or that scrutiny should not happen? That it, it is just something I find incredibly intriguing. And again, the fact that it's now happened to three, that three different Conservative MPs have done it, feels like a trend I just don't like the look of at all. Mm. Well, Johnson, in a recent pool interview, suggested that the the only reason people cared about Partygate was that journalists kept bringing it up. <laughs> um, he kept saying, you're focusing on the wrong thing, um, which was also a constant refrain of the Corbyn supporters, might tell us something. Is there any merit to this? Do, do, do journalists sometimes just refuse to let go of the wrong bone? I think it's a slightly tough one because, yes, absolutely. And, you know, and I've been critical in the past of occasionally I think um, lobby journalists can focus on the wrong thing. Well, there's clearly a story they find amusing, so they decide to make it run and run and run for days on end. But I think crucially the problem is if you're someone in politics, you don't really get to complain about that. And especially Boris Johnson, who is a former journalist himself and a former columnist at that, does not get to complain. That's not part of the game at all. So, you know, as frustrating as it must be for them, yes, journalists just write about whatever they want, even though that occasionally includes, you know, the wrong thing or not the convenient thing. But yeah, they just have to uh, shut up and put up with it, I think. Yes, I think if we put up with uh, months of Ed Miliband looking funny while eating a bacon sandwich, um, we're allowed to ask a few questions about the Prime Minister breaking his own rules. Yes, you'd think, wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, our special guest today is a, a true Renaissance woman. She's an author, screenwriter, actress, comedian, celebrity MasterChef champion, and a parish councillor. Welcome back to the bunker, Emma Kennedy. Uh, it's a delight to be back. Emma, most Plan B restrictions in England end on Wednesday mm. and the Transport Secretary just announced that there will be no testing coming in or out of the country if you're vaccinated from the 11th of February. Um, is this part of Operation Red Meat, do you think, or or have we genuinely got COVID done? Well, I don't think we've we've got COVID done. I, I would feel a lot more relaxed about uh, the, these measures sort of evaporating into the mist if I didn't have a horrible feeling that this is just to save Boris Johnson's skin. Um, throughout all of this pandemic, I have, I, I've stuck to the rules like, like most of the people, but the people who I have listened to most on this are the doctors and the nurses who are on the front line because I think they are the best litmus test as to where we are uh, in the pandemic at, at any given point. And across the board, I was seeing them on Twitter or I have a couple of friends who are frontline um, medics just saying this is crazy and this is the wrong time to do it. Now, it may well be that um, we, we can start thinking about lifting things, but I think to have done them all at once Mm. Ju just feels a little bit reckless and a little bit self-serving. I mean, I, for one, I don't know, you know, people have ha, do have some objections to masks, but, but I think a lot of people now are used to wearing them. Uh, they get it that we are facing a pandemic that, that, that has a high transmissibility rate and, and will spread very widely in a crowd. I am with you completely. Yeah. I really, I can't see myself going back into a crowded no. tube carriage, especially no during flu season, mm. without a mask on. Well, and I it's mean, fairly yeah. commonplace in, in Southeast Asia. Yes, um, I mean, th th so that's the thing. It, it's a cultural shift. 
And uh, I, I think in Britain especially, I think we 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 get the heebie-jeebies about cultural shifts. It's all like, mm. no, no, our, our noses are British. We don't catch things here, thank you. Um, but you know, <laughs> it's it's just a bit of cloth. And and uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but I haven't had a cold or flu uh, at all since the beginning of the pandemic, and and it's been rather nice actually. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. I completely agree. More from all our panel further in the show. Thank you for tuning in. We really appreciate you listening and hope you're enjoying the bunker. If you'd like to help us produce the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon, where from as measly a contribution as two pounds a month, you'll get early episodes, merchandise, and all kinds of extras. Search Bunker Patreon Podcast or check today's show notes for more information. It shouldn't be a full-time job for the civil service to remind the government what it did last year. But as one investigation is being finalized, another is being ordered. I should be more specific since it is almost certain that in the 12 hours between this podcast being recorded and its being released, a new scandal will have broken. Sue Gray's report, which was expected last week, then early this week, is now expected late this week. On Wednesday, Tory MP Christian Wakeford defected to Labour. On Thursday, Tory MP and Chair of the Constitutional Affairs Committee, William Ragg, advised fellow Tory MPs to shop party whips to the Met for blackmail. On Monday, Boris Johnson asked the Cabinet Office to investigate what were the reasons for which Nusrat Ghani was sacked as Transport Minister by, you guessed it, Boris Johnson. Maybe he didn't realise he was sacking her, was only at the meeting for 25 minutes, and besides, nobody told him Islamophobia was against the rules. Gavin, let's take this in reverse order. Nusrat Ghani told the Sunday Times that she was sacked from her ministerial job, at least in part because of her Muslimness. Is this surprising, given the Conservatives' general and Johnson's personal track record with this? It's Unfortunately, not surprising. I remember years ago, I can't remember how many, discussing precisely this with Saeed Avasi, uh, who said there is Islamophobia within the Conservative Party, and there was a big row then, and we were told it was going to be dealt with. Now Saeed Avasi, Baroness Avasi, somebody I deeply respect, says it's going on again, we need to look at it. So has the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, and and, uh, Nadim Zahawi, the Education Secretary, Uh, suggesting there's something to be looked at here. When Jewish people say there's anti-Semitism at work, uh, I believe them. And when people say that this is Islamophobia or potentially needs to be investigated, then I believe them. Mm. The whip in question, Mark Spencer, outed himself as the person in the story and called the claims defamatory. He also attacked Ghani for not making a formal complaint when invited to do so. Is that a valid criticism, do you think? Well, I I mean, I don't know what happened. Uh, I do think if you out yourself and then say that these uh, charges are defamatory, then you're asking, obviously, for a to prolong what is a row. But we've had much worse than that, you know. I mean, if there's no Islamophobia in the Conservative Party, Michael Fabricant, who is an MP, a Conservative MP, and and for those of our listeners trying to figure out who he is, he's the guy who looks like the fifth beetle with the very blonde hair. (laughs) Fabricant 
Fabricant said, and I'm quoting here, she's hardly someone who's obviously a Muslim. Now, what on earth does that mean? What, <laughs> I mean quite seriously, what does that mean? I, uh, I, 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 I'm not even going to go there. But I would suggest uh, to uh, I would suggest to Boris Johnson that simply uh, passing it off, saying you didn't know, saying nobody told you there was Islamophobia in the Conservative Party because nobody told you there was a party, suggests nobody told you anything about anything, mm. which is uh, uh, frankly unbelievable. Yes, I think the fifth beetle is the the kindest thing that's ever been said about Michael Fabricant on this podcast. I, um, I saw. Um, I, I I don't know if you saw it on Twitter, but somebody did a brilliant thing with Michael Fabricant today that they put the face of Dougal, which is, you have to be you have to be a certain age to to remember it, but but literally as a brooch on the side of his head, and it's amazing. I, I have to say, if you're familiar with the the dark crystal and you know what podlings are, um, you can't get away from that. Uh, <laughs> once you get it in your head, it is impossible to not see Michael Fabricant as a podling. Um, <laughs> Gavin, do you think this story will cut through? And most importantly, will it cut through to a uh, to a community that's actually? broadly quite supportive of, of the Conservatives. Uh, what, what do you think will come out of it? I mean, the, the, there's such a barrage of sleazy allegations of uh, bad conduct, of poor judgment uh, on the Conservative Party. It's so difficult to see which one will cut through more than any other. I mean, just think of the Trump years in the United States. It was every day another nightmare, and he managed to see out four years of his term. However, I do think that the question really is, what is Boris Johnson's utility, not to us as the British people, but to his fellow members of the Conservative Party and particularly the, Bre the Brexiters who never minded that he didn't stand for anything as long as he would somehow pretend to get Brexit done and not, not fuss about the details. So who knows whether he can, he can survive this, but it simply won't go away. This is going to run and run. And, mm. you know, it's not as if there's not other things that we have to worry about, including the possibility of massive land war in Europe, which I know we're going to get to in a moment. Yeah. Now, before all that, travelling back in time, soon we will need previously on recaps on this thing to, to, to cover all the Tory scandals. So Tory MP and Chair of the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee, William Ragg, complained of intimidation and threats to withdraw investment in constituencies if MPs didn't vote with the government, which amounted, he says, to blackmail. Marie the reaction from some quarters was, oh, boohoo, this happens all the time and nobody complained before. Is this just ordinary cut and thrust politics or does it go beyond? Um, so I think it's a bit of both in that I don't think stuff like that had really properly happened to that extent in quite a long time, because that is the behaviour of, I think, a whip's office in a large majority government, one of which we'd not had in a long time, I mean, at, at, at risk of stating mm, the mm. obvious the more, you know, the, the more MPs a government has, the bigger the majority is, the more power whips have. 
um, because they don't really care about individual votes as much as they did, for example, um, under Theresa May. Um, right. And they are actually stories. So I, I wrote a story on this a few days ago. And, you know, and there are stories of whips in the early, especially new Labour governments, doing exactly the same. But, you know, the stories are nearly word for word the same of MPs saying, well, you know, I want, wanted to vote against this. And the MP said, actually, that shiny new school or whatever in your constituency, you will not get um, if you don't vote for, vote for us. So I think it is... Basically, it is absolutely the case that it is something that has happened before. It's not unprecedented in any sense. But I'm not convinced that's the right question to ask. I think the question is, okay, well, you know, even if it's been happening for a long time, should it maybe stop? Is it maybe bad? I think there's a tendency towards entropy in Westminster, which is, oh, well, you know, we've always done this, so it must be fine. And it's like... Is it? And especially because we've seen, you know, with Me Too in Westminster, the bullying scandals, etc. There has been an air of change, I think, um, going through SW1 over the past few years. And I don't see why that shouldn't be one of those areas of change as well. Let's maybe stop the whips from blackmailing people. Just a thought. Although there isn't there, there is a difference, isn't there, between saying to someone, we're not going to give you funding, which is odious in and of itself, and blackmail, which uh, is, you know, threatening someone to reveal something about their personal life uh, if they don't do something. That, that, you know, blackmail is a criminal offence. Yeah, isn't also the point, not whether it's happened traditionally or whether it happens now, but the fact that we're being told about it now by members of the Conservative Party who are clearly very angry. And I think that's the key. The key is that they know that the party's in a mess. They know that the uh, that, that Brexit and other things have caused it to to uh, have huge problems and put up with Johnson as a leader. And some of them aren't prepared to do it. It's mm. the fact that they're complaining about it that seems to me to be the the biggest part of the story. I think that's a really good point. If it went on all the time and people are only talking about it now, then. The fact they're talking about it is obviously symptomatic of something going on. Um, Marie, Rag is one of the MPs who has publicly submitted a letter to the 1922 committee calling for a leadership contest. Nadine Dorries, um, who has in the past eaten ostrich asshole on TV, accused him of attention-seeking behaviour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean... <laughs> The jokes just write themselves, folks. Um, Is there is there any truth? Okay, so let's not let's not play the woman. Let's play the ball. Is there any truth to that? Is there a little bit of attention seeking going on uh, by backbenchers who want to make a name for themselves? Well, I think so. I think it's true that, you know, and and it's true and it's known that William Ragg is not a massive fan of Boris Johnson's. And that's again, you know, that that's not new information at all. So I'm sure that, you know, what he's doing is collared to an extent by his uh, opinion of Boris Johnson. Um, Trying to see Nadine's point, I suppose you could say that perhaps, you know, his kind of thing of like, and, you know, the Metropolitan Police will be involved now uh, was, I think, perhaps a bit much. Um, in that I'm not convinced anything could come out really of a Met investigation into the whipping operation. Or, you know, if there is, you know, I'll happily eat my hat, but um, but it doesn't strike me as a police matter. So I'm sure that, yeah, he's probably inflated it a bit. But then, you know, but, but then I suppose you could argue that at the moment, and as we've talked about um, amply this week and on past weeks, so much is going on at the moment that actually you do probably need to go big or go home to get heard or, you know, cared about by anyone. So may- maybe that's why he went big. I mean, I, I think I think if he'd come out naked, with with tassels on his nipples, 
then I think he might have been accused of attention seeking. <laughs> but I think just 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 being a politician coming out and just quietly and rather boringly reading out a statement that was explosive, I don't really put that in the attention seeking bracket. Yes. And and not wearing a Jim Henson creation on your head. Um <laughs> uh, now Christian Wakeford. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to believe that this happened also since we last recorded. Um, so Christian <laughs> Wakeford is a 2019 intake young Tory MP, defected to Labour on Wednesday. Much of the commentary from older backbenchers has basically been outrage at these young upstarts making trouble. Is there a generational conflict at the centre of this, Marie, do you think? Oh, yeah, no, 100%, absolutely. I think, you know, I, I could fill up an entire other podcast, I think, on the tricky dynamic between the 2019 Tory intake and the rest of the Conservative Parliamentary Party. But, um, but no, I think, long story short, the problem is that, you know, that generation of MP, A, they're a massive intake, so they've kind of grown an identity of their own. Um, and a lot of them as well were not, you know, born and bred in Westminster. Um, but also more importantly, you know, they, they were in Parliament for about four minutes and then the pandemic happened and they just went back to their constituencies, did not massively see other people, did not get to socialise with other MPs. And instead, I think, had these WhatsApp groups of the 2019 intakes. So it got really close to one another, but not to the rest of the party and were not, mm. um, you know, and, and I was talking, and I think there's quite a lot of disdain. I was talking to a former special advisor um, today. He's been knocking about Westminster for a very long time. Um, and who compared the 2019 intake to um, untrained puppies uh, pissing on the carpet to get attention? So that, that that's where the relationship is at right now. I think that there's a lot of frustration. But yeah, not but the a more, great place for it to be, I think. It's not. But again, I think it's a basic human thing if they've not really spent enough time around each other. And that's that means that the resentment basically starts a lot earlier than it would uh, between people who know each other better. Well, okay. I, you're right, but at the same time, I would point out that if the defence to these very heavy-handed tactics from whips, uh, if the basic defence is, oh, we've always done that, they know the score, this is what politics is like, where, you know, to someone of the 2019 intake that hasn't been socialized in that way they don't know the score and to them a whip approaching them and saying i'm not going to give you money for a school and i'm going to publish you know some dirt about you in the tabloids might genuinely be terrifying um because actually they don't know that's the way things work in Westminster. They haven't had that experience. I know, absolutely. I, I, yeah, we are in agreement. Um, and again, I think the only relationship they'd had with the whips before like, was very different because it was mostly done over WhatsApp and it was not really, um, again, it was not really done in person and no one got to really ease them into, I think, that system. They didn't necessarily have all the hands as well to um, to rely on. So, you know, they could not, let, I don't know, you know, let's say receive a text or something from a whip and be able to turn around to someone who's from the 2010 intake, let's say, and say, actually, you know, is this okay? Is that good? Should I worry about this? Mm, like, again, mm. they, I, I suspect they feel quite isolated anyway. Yeah. Emma, Sue Gray's report is due, um, inshallah, out this week. Mm. Um, Cummings is giving evidence to her on Monday. <laughs> or has given evidence yes. to her on Monday when you yes. listen to this podcast. What should we expect from that report? Well, bearing in mind that that she has a very limited remit, and mm. there will be that that the, there are sort of 
two schools on Sue Gray, the government and Boris Johnson, who have been saying, come on, everyone, let's wait for for Sue Gray to report, knowing full well that it isn't within her remit to establish wrongdoing or or to point criminality Mm. firmly at the, uh, the prime minister. Um, and then there's the, the the other school of thought, which is, well, she can't do anything. This is going to be a whitewash. It's probably going to land somewhere in between because I I think that even though she is constrained, I think the the evidence of wrongdoing at number ten is probably so overwhelming that even if she just writes it out as bald facts then there's not going to be much wriggle room. And and I think this is where I'm slightly intrigued as to why Boris Johnson has gone down this route, because they have set themselves up to fail, really, because if she does turn around and say, well, this is what I found and these things aren't very good, they, he's going to have to go. And and mm. I th- and I th- it was interesting. I was talking to uh, an ERG Tory today, not not an MP, but 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 someone who is connected to them. And as far as they're concerned, he's he's going to be gone by the end of the week. Mm. Um, how do you think these scandals interact with each other? Do you think they become a big swirl that after a while may convince MPs that only a change of management can save them, or? Or is there a danger that they become so difficult to follow that the public will simply lose interest? Uh, there, there are shades of Trump now with Boris Johnson. Mm, mm. And I think there was certainly with Donald Trump that there was a, a sort of a sense of scandal fatigue. And I think we are in that territory. But I and I posed this question on Twitter last week of conservatives who follow me. I just said, aren't you exhausted by it? And I am starting to feel properly that the end of the road is nigh for Boris Johnson because I think people are exhausted by it. And this is no way to run a country. And it's one thing to sort of have policies that people don't agree with, but it's a shambles and that's mm. the only way of describing it. We, we, are, we are in a chaotic shambles. And, yeah. and I don't think anybody likes it. Yeah, I mean, just before we started recording, Treasury Minister Lord Agnew resigned in response mm. to a Lord's question by the opposition on this write-off of five billion yeah. worth of uh, COVID loans. Well, it, it's slightly—it's the... slightly worse than that. It's the four point three billion of of fraudulent furlough uh, claims that yeah. he's decided to write off. And and I really think, my goodness me, that that's a sort of an impossible amount of of money. And well, there's nothing he can do about it. Well, hang on, stop. That they go after and they go after aggressively benefit fraudsters, and that's only to the tune of sixty three million. So, so this is absolutely just dwarfing that by a considerable amount. But there's also mm. questions for Rishi Sunak about a further five billion that was given to firms who are in tax havens. Yeah. So, it, it just, the the point is, it just seems never ending. Every, yeah, it's never you know, ending. every every few hours, there's some there's some new thing that that in ordinary times would be enough to give a government very serious trouble. Well, um, in, no, in normal times, any one of these things would would have finished somebody off. But but for the past four years, if not five, 
we are in the, the the brave new world of MPs not thinking they have to resign for anything. I, I liked Marina Hyde's um, description of Johnson's predicament in her latest piece, um, where she said it's like one of those nature documentaries where a giant snake eats a whole animal and occasionally just pauses for rest, <laughs> just giving giving yeah. false hope. Yeah. But we all know how this ends. Marie... Yes. Do you think do you think she's right? Is the question now when Johnson goes rather than if or or is there a chance he might escape? Uh I'm going to stick with uh my prediction which I've been making since about November which is that I think they will get rid of him over the summer after the locals. Now why would mm. you I think if you think about it now if you're a conservative MP why would you get rid of him now? knowing that, again, you know, the locals are coming. There's not enough time, I think, for a, con- a new Conservative Prime Minister to repair the Tory brand to the extent that the locals go very well. So do you really want to like, basically get a new PM in now whose first action would be to get, you know, murdered in the locals? So I don't think so. A, that, and I think B, again, and I think I'm repeating myself here, but there's just about enough, I think, Conservative MPs who do not lobby the Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss and who want to see basically all the other potential candidates give them a bit of time to try and prepare mm. and get teams together and stuff. So I think it's happening in the next six months, certainly, but Six months, not six days. Okay. I, I did ask my uh, Tory friend about this, about about the why don't they wait till May? And his take on, on that was that why on earth would you let him destroy the party in May? Because you're going to lose all your councillors. You're going to allow other parties to, to, to really get a, a hold in those constituencies. So, you know, we'll wait and see. Um, we might as well take a full straw poll. Um, what do you think, Gavin? I don't think he'll wriggle free. I think he is done for. I'm not sure about the timing. Uh, but what I can say is that the same people who've given us then three failed Conservative leaders within six years, Cameron, May and now Johnson, will undoubtedly pick some great leader for the future because the same system, the same very narrow electorate, give us a same kind of prime minister and God help us. This week has seen a rapid escalation of the crisis on the Ukrainian border. Russia continues to amass troops on the southeastern side, and there are fears that Belarus is now joining from the north. Russia continues to deny any plans to invade. The US has ordered relatives of its embassy staff to leave, saying an invasion could come at any time. Britain has started withdrawing staff from its embassy in Ukraine. Amid growing fears of a Russian invasion, European foreign ministers are meeting on Monday with Blinken dialing in to decide whether to follow suit. Um, Gavin, what are the reasons behind the tension? Why is Russia putting its troops on the border with Ukraine? Just a, a basic explainer. Well, one of the theories is Putin wants his empire back. I think it's slightly slightly different from that, uh, but the two are kind of uh, contiguous. I think what he recognises, I've talked to a lot of Russians over the past uh, year or so, because I've been doing a, a series on Putin as the world's biggest criminal, basically, stealing uh, Russia's wealth in the big steal. Well, anyway, Putin, they say, 
cannot bear the thought of a successful democratic Ukraine because that would increase demands for Russian democracy. And although he's got 140,000 troops or whatever it is and seems strong, his weakness is also obvious because at the start of his presidency and for many years, he didn't really crack down on a lot of his critics. Now the poison came out from Navalny, Navalny's in jail, and in some ways this is weakness, not strength. It doesn't mean to say it's not dangerous and it doesn't mean to say there won't be some kind of war because for Putin to withdraw now would make him seem weak among some in his domestic constituency. Mm. So do you think a full-blown conflict is now getting towards inevitable and we're just talking about scale? Well, I would be very, very concerned if NATO and Western powers were to think of some major concession to get Putin off the hook that he's made for himself. That also worries me. Uh, I think uh, uh, some kind of pretext for a war is very, very possible. I think it's much more likely than unlikely. And I actually think Ben Wallace, the British Defence Secretary, is one of those who have articulated very clearly the case as to why we should be very, very concerned about Russia, why NATO should be concerned and so on. In fact, I, I think he's been a shining light of rationality within a British government of a lot of, a lot of failures. Mm. Um, Marie, do you think this is primarily about Ukraine or is it primarily a testing of Biden's resolve and Ukraine is the incidental part? Um, well, I think I'm going to give quite an unhelpful answer, which is that I was not entirely sure. So I decided to read up on this. And actually, most of the experts I looked to said, well, actually, we're not entirely sure either. And I was like, great, so at least it's not just me. So I'm not, I'm not convinced yet yeah, any, anyone truly like knows the answer to this for certain. And it, it is fair to say that, you know, Ukraine's independence has long been a sore point for Russia and for Putin anyway. So it's not a massive surprise that he's decided to do something like this now. But it's not Again, I think the timing and the certainty of whether something will actually happen does seem to be a bit murky still. Although, so something I did come across in my research that I found really interesting. So according to a recent poll, half a million Ukrainians have military experience and 24% of respondents uh, said they would resist Russian occupation, quote, with a weapon in hand. So again, it's not like, you know, it, it, it's not like a country that would go in any way quietly. Mm. European leaders, especially the new German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, have been accused of being slow and equivocal and basically unwilling to break their energy dependency from um, Russia. Is there now a clear argument, do you think, for closer military cooperation, maybe even a European army? Do we need a forum that can, in which these things can be discussed more quickly and decided more equivocally, unequivocally, as you say. Well, I think so. I think a forum could be interesting, but actually, I would argue that, especially what you've just said, points the other way, which is that a European army could not work. I mean, for a number of reasons, but also because different member states have quite different ideas. I think over what should be done over conflicts like um, like Russia and Ukraine. Um, and if you look as well, I think quite a lot of the military stuff works better on a bilateral basis between countries that work well together. So France and Britain being actually really a, a good example with Britain being out of the EU. You know, these are two countries currently cooperating in the Sahel together in Mali. And you could see kind of getting together over this as well, be, because they're quite, you know, gung ho and quite um, trigger happy, certainly more trigger happy than, again, countries like Germany. So. Again, I'm not. I'm not really seeing it happen. I'm not seeing the kind of you know the, the 27 agreeing enough. I think on military mm. and defence stuff for this to basically make sense. 
Gavin, is it enough for, for us to, to bitch about what everyone else ought to be doing better while London remains the world's money laundering capital and Russian oligarchs sort of favourite safe house? That is a very, very good question. I think yes, absolutely uh, right. I mean, obviously, our Prime Minister and our Foreign Secretary are not uh, missing in action in this. But what would what could be done is what Bill Browder uh, has been arguing about for years, which is the the Magnitsky Act, which he Browder worked in Russia. He's an American citizen. He now lives in London. He got the U.S. Congress to pass an act to uh, try to stop people associated with the worst parts of the Putin regime from uh, laundering their money and bringing their mm. money to the West. We've kind of gone along with that, but we could go much, much further. And one of the things which is being considered in Washington, partly as a result of Browder and others prodding them, is wouldn't it be great to start making public where the assets of uh, Russian oligarchs are and how much money they've got and where we know it is because the people who've been following it do know where much of, much of this money is yeah. and embarrass them. And once you attack in financial sense, the kind of people that are in Putin's in, inner circle in this Kremlin kleptocracy, then you put real pressure on, on, on Putin. At least that's what Browder believes. That's what Mikhail Khodorkovsky believes, who is the, the head of UCOS, and he's now in, in exile in London. So they seem to think it will work, and they know it much better than I do. Emma, a dictator or an autocrat, if you want to use a slightly softer word, enjoys an obvious advantage in these situations. All Putin has to do is make a decision and pick up the phone and order X. A democratic nation is slow and fractious and ambiguous by comparison, let alone a collection of democratic nations. Is that circle squareable at all? Well, if you're asking me, are there any pros to being a dictator and maybe we no, should... No, no, that's, that's not what one. I'm asking. I'm saying we make the trade-off, you know, we, we make that trade-off. But time and again, as we saw with the annexation of the Ukraine, you know, Putin has sort of done the thing, finished the thing, installed his own government while we're mm. still you know, trying to unbunch our knickers to, to get yes. dressed and, and go to the talking shop where we're going yes. to discuss what we're going to do. How do we undo that? How, how, how do we make ourselves more decisive but, but without being dictators? Yes. Is it sort of that? Well, I mean, yes. I, I don't know if it's possible. I mean, d democracy is always going to be a messy business. You know, it's d democracy is a long act of attrition and compromise, and and, and that is what it is. Uh, you know, whereas dictatorships, yes, all right, yep, they're they're lovely deterrents on crime, and they 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 provide ruling stability. But the problem with dictatorships is that the dictators are never empathetic, publicly minded citizens. They're all psychopaths, hell bent mm. on making themselves and their mates richer. Mm. But in terms of uh, what can what what can democracies do when they're when they're up against dictatorships? I think it it's 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 not impossible to be able to make um, fast decisions when you have to, and it, I, I don't really get the sense that the West is sort of sitting back on their heels and and humming with mugs of tea in their hand. It does feel as if. You know that they are mobilised within their democratic remit, and 
uh, I think it would be entirely wrong if if we sort of you know made the first shot. But I I, I don't think anyone is in any doubt now that if Putin decides to go into Ukraine, he's he's going to be met with significant force very quickly. Mm. Um, doubling back a little to our domestic situation, our prime minister is just besieged with scandal and largely in hiding. Our foreign secretary has half an eye on Brexit negotiations and her leadership campaign. Trevor Kavanagh wrote an interesting piece that the situation in Ukraine may actually save Johnson because Tory MPs wouldn't want to destabilise an MP at such a time. But isn't the opposite argument also true, that this, this chaos makes the need for a competent government even more pressing? Well, I think I think a sensible person would say that, yes, is that, is that the last person you would want to be taking this nation into any war is Boris Johnson, um, who, you know, we'd be lucky if he'd turn up to a Cobra meeting for a start. But then again, I still think if, if Sue Gray's report is out this week and, and it is strong enough that his position is untenable, I think he's got to get, he will probably have to go same day. So, you know. From your lips. From my lips, yes. (laughs) Marie, uh, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, whom um, Gavin mentioned, wrote a a good essay on this, on why the West is not a threat to Russia. The real threat is the appeal of the West to Russia's neighbours. You know, that there's not a sort of a fantastically active recruitment campaign going on. But the fact is the vast majority of Ukrainians want to join the EU and want to join NATO, and that's what's creating the problem for him. There's been some quarters, including former German defense minister Volker Ruhe, um, in the, I think it was in the build, suggesting that actually the only thing to be done is to invite Russia to join NATO. And uh, I first of all recoiled at that idea, but then I started thinking about it and I found it rather mind-altering. What what do you make of that? Um, what I think so firstly, I was reading up on this earlier and I came across a really interesting story from a few days ago from a former head of NATO saying that in 2000, Putin had a meeting with him um, and was he asked about Russia joining NATO and was told, well, actually, you know, you just have to apply like everyone else. Um, and he rather snottily said that he didn't want to queue along with countries that didn't matter. So part of me, like the sort of very cynical part of me, likes the idea of all of this happening because a quite teenage girl Putin is like, well, screw you all. <laughs> um, but no, but, but more seriously, I think, I, I mean, I'm, I am similarly baffled by the idea. And even if you look at, at the moment, you know, Putin, that one of his demands at the moment is saying that, you know, Ukraine can never join NATO. So if he is, if he is someone who quite enjoy actually trolling the West, because that's actively what he does quite a lot of the time, um, do we really want him inside of NATO, especially at a time when I think, you know, that there's been wider conversations about how useful NATO is being at the moment and whether it's actually especially relevant at the moment. So I feel like bringing, surely bringing Russia in would make that worse for no obvious good reason. I, yeah, again, say maybe I'm missing something here, but I, I, I would not really see that as a positive development, shall we say. Steve Jobs once called death the single best invention of life because it is the ultimate change agent. 
Fellow tech tycoon Jeff Bezos disagrees and appears to be continuing his relentless drive to write himself into the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a supervillain. This time by funding, along with other billionaires, Altos Labs, a company promising to hack the aging process. But is genetically reversing life's only certainty a utopia or a dystopia? Emma, what do you make of this? Valuable contribution or vanity project? Okay, I have thoughts on this, and and it is these. It it depends when the anti-aging process magic is going to begin. If they're saying, yes, you can get to 35 or that one day in your life where you looked amazing (laughs) and you are going to stay looking like that and feeling like that and, 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 and that is you for as long as you want then super great. I'll take it. But if it's literally living to 150 with a 150-year-old body, I mean, no, thank you. I don't want to be Highlander. (laughs) Uh, There can be only one. There Um, can be only one. The the interesting thing is that Jeff Bezos, if you look if you look at photos of him when he was young, he looked terrible. He looks much better now. He sort of looks like a, he looks like Vin Diesel's uncle yes. now. Uh, yes. Back then, he had a sort of he was a weedy monobrow um, uh, sort of geek. Um, yeah. What aspect of aging scares you the most? Oh, me? Well, well, sort of constantly having to go to the toilet uh, in the middle of the night. Um, no longer enjoying marzipan. That that's been a blow. Uh, <laughs> that's been a personal, personal, personal thing of shame for me. Um, but just general de- decrepitness. Just your, all your joints rusting away. I you know, know. It, it, it's it again. It, it's fine if this anti aging thing is going to sort of stop it all in its tracks. But if if it's just prolong, just keeping you on on nothing more than basically life support, I don't see the point. You know, life is supposed to be about being able to live and experience things. And if you're just sort of sitting in a you know somewhere sort of just trapped in, in a tissue of of aged skin with maybe just your brain in a bottle then i don't really see what the upside is and it happened so remarkably quickly a, a few years ago i was out raving and now you know i i find myself telling myself careful now when i get out of the bath so um <laughs> yes be, be careful now i i will give a counterpoint to this is is that i have an insane need to know what happens and so if I could just catapult my brain through the rest of history just to find out what happens, I mean, I'd love that. That would be great. But that's a, that's a time travel machine, which I'm slightly more interested in. Gavin, if this lab is successful, are we going to see the world's richest people basically living forever, accumulating more and more wealth? Is this something that will become accessible to everyone? Or is it basically just tech billionaires? Well, you've put your finger on it, actually. The secret, I don't know about the secret of eternal life, but the secret of longer life is not to be born where I was, which is in a council estate in Clyde Bank. Because Glasgow's got about the lowest, uh, you know, life expectancy of Europe. And uh, one of the reasons for that, there's all kinds of reasons for for, for that. Uh, 
alcoholism, uh, poverty, uh, and so on and so on. So if Jeff Bezos actually wanted to do something, he could he could obviously spend billions so he can go on and on forever, or he could actually think maybe the answer is how to get people having a proper life with decent chances of making a reasonable amount of money and a reasonable diet, which isn't just, you know, um, full of the fatty stuff that that kills us. And the other Mm. thing is, I agree totally with Emma. I mean, the question is whether you have a long life or whether you have a healthy life. If you have a healthy life, you have a happy life. If you have a long life, you couldn't be miserable for the last 20 years, as so many people unfortunately are. And that's that's the, the, the choice. The choice, and in any case, would you? Uh, if Jeff Bezos has changed so much since his youth, can you imagine what he'd look like in another seventy years' time? <laughs> if you knew you could live forever, is there something you would be doing differently today? Me, I, uh, gosh, uh, maybe I would learn how to play the piano properly. You know, that would take forever. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'd get to the end of one of the one of the Dune movies, which I've never. <laughs> That's a thousand-year project, right there. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't actually. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe I'd dust my bookshelves. Gosh, I'll, 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 I'll sit at home thinking about that all evening. <laughs> Marie, what about you? Other projects you'd embark, you'd embark on that you currently don't bother with because you just know you'd never finish them. Um, so I think one completely absurd thing that got into my head a few years ago and is still there for some reason that I can't shake is I would love to learn how to sculpt ice statues which is just a weird, insane thing where I'm like, it's, you know, the height of pointlessness of just spending hours and days on something before it melts. And so I think that, you know, if I had literally all of time ahead of me, I'd be like, yeah, fine, I I, I will learn how to do just, but as in that really beautiful, striking life-size ice statues. So yeah, there you go. You can go on on courses for that, Marie, you know, that, that, that you can do for a day or a weekend. No, no, but I think, again, in my head, I want to do, you know, like the sort of like Rodin level. <laughs> like I, yes, yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, you want to be the Botticelli of ice oh, statues. I want people to, to weep at the beauty of my ice sculptures, yes. I found um, out the other day why ice statues uh, are popular and it blew my mind. So apparently they put them usually on wedding buffets um, to surround them with the things that would go off very, very quickly, like prawn and things oh. like that. So they, so they keep that area refrigerated, uh, and the and the custom was to have a big block of ice basically sitting there. And then someone said, "Well, for a wedding, let's try to make it nicer." And that's where that whole thing comes ah, from. So that is very there interesting. you go, um, Emma. Okay, let's take the health aspect out of it. Yes. So let's say you can live a long time healthily, yes. Yes. but not looking young, okay? So yes. here's your options. Would you prefer to live for 80 years as an 18-year-old oh. or 800 years as an 80-year-old? Oh, what a dreadful choice because you nobody wants to be 18 again nobody i must decide then heck i want to know what happens in the future i'm going to do 880 bring it on okay marie oh complete opposite like i had a ball when i was 18 and <laughs> I, I would happily take 80 more years of that just behave absolutely appallingly for 80 years with no sense of guilt because i'd not developed i think the guilt sense in my brain yet at that point so yeah gavin 
Oh, I'd, I'd probably uh, stick with being an 18-year-old, although I would get my hair cut differently. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we want to see the photographic evidence I sent. Never see it. Never see yeah. it. Well, good luck getting on the housing ladder if all the grannies live forever. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's now time for the panel's escape routes. What are the films, TV shows, music, books and work meetings that have transported our panellists away from the bruising world of politics? Gavin. Uh, I've been watching a lot of great films. I watched uh, Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, which was fantastic, wonderful. I, I enjoyed also, I was surprised I did, but Pig with Nicolas Cage, uh, who has a truffle pig which gets kidnapped. That's that's quite good. And oh. I even enjoyed Sing 2. I thought that was uh, the Mitchell Mitchells versus the Machines. Dune, I didn't get to the end of. <laughs> <laughs> Marie, what about you? Um, so I have just started watching Babylon Berlin, um, the German TV series set in the Weimar Republic, uh, which is uh-huh. incredibly good. To, I mean, I've literally only watched one episode, so this is very enthusiastic of me, but it was a really good first episode. So that, and I have been reading um, If I Had Your Face by Frances Shah, who's a Korean uh, novelist, like quite young as her first book. And it's this novel set in yeah modern day South Korea, revolving around the lives of four women. It's really, really sharp, quite dark, but in quite a fun way. It's very, very good. Oh, brilliant recommendation. How about you, Emma? And you uh, can only choose one because I, I know can, what you're oh. like. <laughs> oh, I can only choose one. No, go on, you get two, but make right, them then. quick. Okay, all right. Um, Ozark 4, which is just fabulous. Um, and I'm building the boutique hotel in Lego. Oh, wonderful. My other half just finished The Blacksmiths. It oh, it's a bit, that has one of the greatest um, little extras in any Lego set ever, that there is a bear rug on the top floor. Has he got to that bit yet? Yes, yes, yes he's finished exactly it. And it brilliant. has a, a little fire that, uh, that, that glows up. red. Yeah, yeah right. that's lovely. Well, my, my escape route has been via Archive 81, which I recommend very, very highly. It's a very creepy um, series on Netflix about someone restoring some old videotapes in a remote location and basically becoming drawn into a mystery of what happened to the documentary maker. And because that's based on a podcast, I started exploring the, the area of horror podcast and found some really brilliantly creepy stuff like palimpsest is one and alice isn't dead is a a terrific thing a story told by a female truck driver um and it and they hark back to the the great tradition of ham radio which is where of course the horror genre started and and they've been a pleasure and a joy and that's the end of this week's bunker thanks to gavin esler Thank you very much. To Marie Leconte. Thanks for having me. And to our very special guest, Emma Kennedy. Oh, you're more special. (laughs) We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. And don't forget a new episode of The Culture Bunker every Saturday. Remember, if you like this podcast, send it to three friends to spread the word. There's a share button right there in your app. And if you really liked it, then you could support us on Patreon for early episodes, merchandise and all kinds of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Backers get a shout-out at the end of the podcast, and here are some now. Hello, and many thanks from me to Lincoln Stone, Ryan Lee. 
Best wishes from me to Ed Baker and Audrey Jameson. And many thanks from me to Linda Killen and Laigia Marsh. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Alex Andreev. With audio production from me, Robin Luke. The Bunker is produced by Yelena Sofronovich and Jacob Archbold. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. And lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production.